to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N, Tulsa.org. And for the first time, it feels like for some people, for the first time, that, that all of a sudden we're just this minority that has no voice to no. That's a weird feeling for a lot of people. They, they felt like we kind of were in the room and sitting at the table and at least had a voice. And now it seems like sometimes decisions are made and culture goes on without evangelicalism having a voice. And so that can be scary sometimes. Uh, it seems to happen almost overnight. Uh, and so, again, if we are people who rest, Constantly. And, and all those voices, and the fact that sometimes it feels like that we don't have a voice, this shows us God has spoken. He's the ultimate authority. That should bring us rest. That should bring us trust. We're, we're, um, maybe it's you looking at the nightly news. Maybe it's uh, all day long getting little tweets from places. If you think through it, um, what were the three most powerful tweets? That impacted your life in 2020. So if you're on Twitter, three most powerful tweets. Maybe, maybe the, the three most powerful Facebook threads. If, if you think about it, you might not be able to remember there wasn't anything really life-changing. But yet, sometimes as Christians even, how much time is spent just just putting yourself in the room to get all these little messages that really are not that helpful. And yet, 99% of that's unhelpful and just trivial. And yet, God has spoken to us and how helpful is that? How helpful is that for our soul? He's purposely doing it, not just to be trivial, but to help our souls, to, to give us more love for Him, more understanding of Him. And so, um, we're going to see that today. Um, the Bible is meant to be the thinking pausing, contemplating, and, and then responding, and then and loving. Like Jason said, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar's response, and then hopefully we'll see uh, what, what our response should be. So let me pray as we uh, get into this first little section. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that your voice has spoken, that your word is true, as we'll see later on today, that, that it is faithful. That you are going to do it is certain and it is unchanging. God, thank you that you are powerful enough to pull off your redemptive plan. Thank you that we, as a, even a small group of people in this place, we can have the trust and hope in you because you are unchanging, because you are faithful to your covenant promises. And so, as we go into the end, would you guide us, Holy Spirit? Would you illuminate our eyes? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? We thank you so much for um, your word. We thank you for bringing us together to be a people that are equipped and that are sent out with this glorious gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. So if you want to turn to Daniel chapter 2, I'm going to read uh, just a section, uh, chapter 2, 31 through 35 today. Uh, I've also got a, I've got a little green screen that's going to show you. This is the way that we're going to be I'm going through this section today. Um, and so, and 
just that first section at the top, and then we'll go down to the, the 36 through 40, 41 through 43, 44 through 45, and then get to the, that, that kind of the final thought. Um, and um, just I want you to be able to track with me today on that. That uh, may be helpful. So we're going to put that up there two or three times just to help people track through this passage because we're going to be bringing in some other passages. Uh, Daniel 2 at the end here in these interpretations. There are the reasons and other passages, so I don't want you to get lost in the weeds of that. So, uh, as we start out here, verse 31. You saw a king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you look, the stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces, and became like the shaft of the summer threshing force. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, Fill the whole earth. So, looking at this first section, we'll see here that uh, this entire section speaks of something that starts where they're at and then goes on as God gives um, interpretation and meaning to this passage, to this statue. And so, he starts out saying, You saw, O King, and behold, a great image. And so, right there, the Bible is supposed to help us to pause and think. So, if you're reading this, um, as he's speaking this in Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to go on talking to him. Other audiences get to read it, but we should pause and sit behold and just, just think for a second. This great image. So, and, and to us, it's not out in the middle of Tulsa, but um, later on we're going to see a statue that made new middle. And so these, these, were, these were statues and images all over. So this was very common. So when, when, when Jesus, or when, when uh, he goes, Talking about this, all through the Old Testament scriptures, there were all kinds of uh, statues and places of worship. And so it was very common. And so it was very clear to them what this looked like. And uh, notice he says it's great. This is a great statue. Well, what would be great about it? What's actually being un unveiled through this statue is God's redemptive plan. He goes through kingdom after kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. And then brings in Christ's kingdom. And so we get bad news and bad news and bad news and bad news. And then God is revealing, I've got a plan. I've got a redemptive plan through history. And so that's why this is a great image. Um, God is sovereign and omniscient and omnipotent over these things. So, like in Isaiah 36, it says, Remember what happened long ago, for I am God. There is no Enough to bring off to bring off his plan 
even though sinful men, saved from his minions, and just natural hurts have God knows all that and is able to pull that off. That's a beautiful thing. He's powerful enough into the future. So the same that we would see for them and for us, God knows the future for us. God is present in the future with us. And that should be scary. Um, whether every presidential election for you is just a difficult time, and oh, who's going to win, what's going to happen, what are all the changes? God is with us in the next four years. God is with us in the next eight years. God is with us in the future. So that should be secure to us. Um, God has a plan in the future that He's going to accomplish. Um, as we go into this, notice the, the scriptures in this statue, the visual descriptors. He says it's exceeding brightness. Its appearance was frightening. Now, notice from the point from the top of the bottom, a lot of commentators, sometimes they will camp out and they will do page after page after page, going so far in depth and probably taking it a little bit too far. So we're not going to spend a ton of time, but it, it's a pretty simple thing, first of all. It, it was just, uh, notice that at the top there's gold. So the head of gold, and so I think I've never said it. So people would note and uh, notice that, um, that from value, it, it decreases. So there's this decrease in value of elements moving from the top to the bottom, from gold down all the way to clay, right? But there's also this increase in strength and hardness moving from gold down to iron. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was an absolute monarch. And so he says, and let him see, he says, you, O king, God has granted this to you. And so he says, you are the head. And it was a goal. It was an absolute monarchy. The rest of the kingdoms that he's going to talk about that are represented in the statue, um, none of them are as strong as far as the civilization of power. Um, so just remember that as we go through those. So that's what he means by that. Um, so the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the middle and thighs of bronze, the legs of iron, and feet of iron clay. Those two together are the end. And so note also what transpires. Not only what it looks like, but the action takes place. That a stone was set out by no human hand, and it struck the image. So it's a very simple, very specific storyline. Shouldn't be lost at this point. Um, a stone is cut out from a mountain by no human hand, meaning that this was otherworldly. This was a supernatural thing that happened. It wasn't formed by man. So that shows that it emphasizes that um, this was not the will of man or the sufficiency of man. Those, those are two things that we really take pride in, right? But we don't have to take pride in the will of man, in our own power, our own sufficiency. But this statue that is really large and a good size, but completely incomparable and invincible, contrasting with the mountain that grows and covers the whole earth. So this little rock that comes and destroys this powerful, tall um, statue of the dream, this small rock that comes, destroys it, and then it turns into this mountain that grows and takes over the whole earth. So, um, a huge stark contrast. We see that in Habakkuk 2.14. We need to know that for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the same kind of thing that's happening there. It's just reverberating that. Um, this first section, what is God reminding us about himself? What is God showing about himself? For them and for us, what are you concerned about for tomorrow? Is it health? Is it the economy? Is it the health of loved ones? Is it your, your career? Is it security? Is it your kids' future? 
your kids success. We've got to make sure we do all these things to make sure that they have a better future. There's no guarantee in that, right? I mean, 75 percent of the world, they don't even think that way. And so, if it's causing sinful worry or disruption in your life or disruption in relationships, um, we've got to lay that on the table. So, so picture this table. Now, I've got all these worries and fears for my kids. Oh, you need to stop Oh, politics. And all these things that we need to just lay them on the table. And then kind of mentally just go, those are some things that I see, God. Your word is true. You have spoken. I'm going to mentally take my arms and wipe that away. And I'm putting your truth on the table. I'm putting your truth. I'm going to put my trust in that. And I'm going to look at that. I'm not going to put my feelings and what I don't know about the darkness of the I'm going to go with what I know about you. And that helps us so much. Um, if we want that off the table, sometimes we're afraid to wipe those things off the table. You know why? Because if I keep in front of me, I like to work on controlling. I love trying to control, 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 control. Instead of what? Hey God, I'm casting my anxieties on you. I'm casting my fears on you. You are faithful. You are true. That's what we see God screaming here. Um, what thing out there does God not know about that might wipe you out? There's nothing. There's nothing. What weakness in your past? What thing about the family that you grew up in? That whether, whether you're in a great family or an abusive family, what thing about your past? What thing about your makeup, your intelligence level, your intelligence level, your socioeconomic? What thing? Does God need to know that He doesn't know about that is really holding back? There's nothing. He's perfect in His plans. He's sufficient. What thing must you control that you're afraid is going to cause devastation? There's nothing. He's showing us. David is in a rough place. This is not like easy for him as he goes into this illustration. It doesn't mean that things are just going to change for David. Like, hey God, and here's this prayer that me and the boys did. You're not telling me that it's going to get better for us. It's like we know the game for the next 70 years is just there. They're still living in exile, still living in way. What have all lovers of God found out about him? He is faithful in your present and he is faithful in your future. So, um, as we go to the next section, I'm thinking through, Daniel now gives the interpretation of this prayer. So Daniel just says, starting out there, this was the dream. Look at verse 36 there. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all them. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And so this second section, Daniel's communicating the, the, the vision, and he, you know, the, the dream, and, and its interpretation. So notice here, um, he goes into defining what this statue represents. So this, the, um, the, the top part, the head of the says, you are the one whom 
the God of heaven has given. Again, just like chapter 1, and just like chapter 2, God's pain name going forward. Here's powerful Nebuchadnezzar, and yet you're, you're, you're just a pawn. God is the one who's given you this authority and power. And your kingdom is not going to last forever. Even though your name even means um, that, to protect the first one, there's going to be another kingdom, and then another kingdom, and then another kingdom, and a fourth kingdom. And so it makes it very clear God is the one that's given us. Um, the head of gold, the Babylonian Empire, a lot of people don't know that it, it, gold was everywhere there. In fact, that main god, uh, Mardu, that they, they had, um, they had a 52,000 pound, 52,000 pound statue of Mardu. Martyr. And so um, they're in Babylon. And so they they were known for their gold. And so um, that was very clear there. And so they're saying that. And so they had about a 65 year reign. This was representative of them being the head. Then notice the, the second one. Just as we've seen repeatedly, God is saying, I'm the one who knows these things and I'm allowing these things to happen. The second part is the chest of arms and silver, the Medo Persian Empire. Um, so they last about 200 years. It would come and rule after Babylon. It was just as vast. It was inferior in many ways by the Babylonian Empire, not as strong uh, because of the absolute monarchy. And, and God, again, is going, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to allow that to happen. Um, now, now, if we went to the practicals of that, then, then what takes place when a powerful new government force takes over? There's a lot of war. There's a lot of it, and so you have to think of the practice for that. We, we read through stuff in Old Testament Scripture, and we don't think what that was like for the people going through that. And yet we go to our day, and we're just overwhelmed by the little bitty things that we I was taking out this morning because of all the stoplights. I hit every one, you have to sit the full few seconds and every stoplight. I was pulling my hair out, and that's like a bad day. That's not a, a whole regime coming in and taking over and taking us out of our homes and taking your children away. And so that's what was happening. And there were these regime changes. That's what's going on. The middle, the middle of the bronze. This was Greece. So Alexander the Great, for about 185 years. Um, so Alexander the Great, he took over, he conquered. So if you go back and think through uh, the stories of Alexander the Great, all that he did in conquering the world, he did every bit of that before he was 33 years old. That's pretty incredible for that time. And he died early. Um, the last one is that the fourth was the, the mighty Roman um, Empire. That's the fourth kingdom. And it reigned, and there's different people that will say, and there's different kinds of they would say the Roman Empire, but, but vastly about 1,500 years. Um, so the Roman Empire was the Iron Empire. It says that there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron. So it was known for that. It was conquering. Um, God's communicating, I'm the sovereign one. There's no like me. I'm going to allow all those things that's not good news for Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Daniel is the one telling him this, this communication of revelation. Now remember, there are some liberal scholars, so if you ever start looking at these things, there are liberal scholars who, when you get to 250 to about 150 or 130 uh, BC, um, they were saying there's no way that Daniel could have written this back in 605 BC. 400 years earlier, because the details were so specific. So some people say Daniel wasn't the one who wrote this, because that would have to be like supernatural 
for him to know what happened that all of these empires came to came power. So of course we believe that that is true. We believe that God did give this. Um, as we move on to Daniel uh, verses 41 through 43 in chapter 2, um, it's a very complex interpretation. It doesn't seem like it on the front end, but if you have some knowledge of some other places in Scripture, it gets to a very delicate area. Um, Daniel again, he's president of Southeastern down in um, Carolina, and then also David Platt and one of their commentators, they said, um, these passages are vague and their meaning is very uncertain, which call for great humility by all who would interpret them. So just know as we're going into this, this is some delicate, difficult thing for people with many different views. We'll get some of these. So let's look at Daniel chapter 2, 41 through 43. As you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. The son of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. So he's using these um, illustrations from the statue to talk about these other kingdoms. Um, so far, in verses 36 through 40, that's been talking about the past. I think I may even have a, a, a slide that shows this in a second. Um, that there's this idea of this um, prophetic gap that happens between verses 40 and verse 41. So 36 through 40 has been talking about those four kingdoms. And then there's this prophetic gap. So what I mean by that is this is uh, what most people consider during the church age. So we're in the church age. And then he goes on and starts speaking about this period that's going to happen uh, towards the end of the church age. And then we're talking about Christ's kingdom. So um, just know that between verses 40 and 41, there's this, this kind of this gap in, in, in prophecy. So some interpret the fourth kingdom, uh, so those legs and the feet, they, they see that it's together as the Roman Empire, and that is a finished, completed kingdom. Uh, it's already happened. So we know that is true of the Roman Empire. Um, but some interpret the fourth kingdom as having a past aspect. So, so keep this in mind, a past aspect, but also a future aspect. So many of you have heard about like this idea of this one world government that may rise up. A lot of them have called that Rome II or the, the, the new Roman Empire uh, in the future. And so um, just knowing that there are some people who would say there is the first um, group in, in, in that, that statue that represented the legs and the reason that he combined the legs and the feet. Then we see that they're supposed to be joined together, but they're cutting apart. We're going to see a little bit more of this in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8, and then in Revelation, that, um, that the legs represent the first Roman Empire, 1,500 years, but the feet is going to talk about a future kingdom. That's, that's a different interpretation there. Um, that would mean there's this um, gap, like I said. This is not just Daniel uh, 41 through 43, but also 41 through 45 plus Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Revelation. Everyone agrees that Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are talking about some of the same things. So if you look into the commentaries, if you go and read Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, um, there are some things that join together in them. And so Daniel 7 actually helps us with Daniel 2. Um, we'll not cover all of that today. Um, it's better covered in other sections. But I just wanted you to be aware that there's this idea. And so there's this, 
um, kind of tolerant when I see that. And so, now, and again, I'm on the hand there. When you see Christ's kingdom there, I'm not trying to uh, define that in black and white. But, so we're going to talk about that in a second also, as far as what that, that means. Um, when I was growing up, my dad, he, was a, he, was just, he loved eschatology and end-time stuff. Um, I went to a um, kind of a prophecy seminar over a weekend with him. Maybe it was several weeks, maybe once a week or like six weeks. So um, they, they were very black and white on things. But my dad always used to say, just keep your eyes on the scriptures. Keep your eyes on Israel. Um, there will always be wars and trouble between Israel and Palestinians. So we've seen that. Isaac and Esau, right? And so um, there will always be wars and trouble between Israel and Palestinians. But um, eventually, they're making this, this conglomerate group that rises up with a world leader and he's able to bring peace between um, Israel and all the Palestinians. So there's this thinking out there that there, there will be this government that rises up, this maybe this regime of uh, several nations, and there's going to be this one powerful leader. Some people even believe that this problem would be the guy that would have been labeled as Antichrist, but that he may even have some supernatural powers. Now that's coming from some different places in the scripture where it seems like we're going to see one today where he, he's speaking great things that it seems like this person's doing. If, if, if that's true, if those interpretations are right, he may even have some supernatural powers where the world is going, how did he do this? This guy is incredible. So that, that's one view of interpretation. Um, so as he does that, this peacemaker would be the head of this, this group. So if you look at the last century, um, there were people when the United Nations were forming, so after World War II, what were some big factors that happened that, that does line up with the prophecy that was being and fixed, right? So Israel, what were they always promised? You're going to be a people and you're going to have your land, right? What happened? After World War II, they were given the land back. So they were a formed people. Um, as the United Nations formed, there were a lot of contents back then saying, this is it. This is that one world government that's coming up. We're going to start doing these things. Do you remember I joked about eating the barcodes? You know, the barcodes and like people were afraid. Um, if you look at the uh, Cold War, so I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And so I remember I actually had a magazine and then another magazine, uh, and that was my education sells all. And so we, uh, <laughs> in, in that, there was always these jokes, and I didn't get it, that it was talking about the Cold War, and everything was talking about Russia's going to nuke us. So if you remember uh, the Red Dawn, and then also Rocky IV, the Russians were always the bad guys. But man, we had Rocky Balboa. It does not matter. Like, you come and try to take us over, you come and try to uh, attack us, we're America. You, you will not even last like a weekend with us. And so there was this idea that, you know, that they were going to come and nuke us, and so they were the bad ones that were going to come and take over. Um, now we've got things going on where, where people would say, well, what about, you know, Islam? Will that be this one world government? Um, there's, there's different people that have different questions, but the question remains, who will be this powerful world government that we'll see that will rise up? Um, some sort of union or kingdom. Now, um, scholars and uh, theologians for centuries have had debates on some of this because of the ties between David and David's Um Notice there in 42 and 43, as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the salt face, so they will mix with one another in marriage. So you see this, this meaning together, but they will not hold together, just as iron is not mixed with clay. There's many different interpretations connecting these verses with other 
verses. Um, and so again, there's this idea that the first part of the Roman Empire was the legs. The feet being mixed of iron and clay um, is the second part. It's a future kingdom. So they're separating um, those interpreters that would separate that and say that there will be this future um, one world power. Uh, this is where connection from chapter 2 and chapter 7 come into place. So I wanted to bring in a little section from chapter 7. We can't spend time on it. But um, there's these four beasts that we're talking about in chapter 7. And this, this does play in and help interpret some of Daniel 2. So if we look at Daniel 7 up there, I think I've got it on the screen. After this I saw the nine visions. Well, there's a whole thing right there. There's nine visions. You've got to go interpret And behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, it had great iron teeth. So you see the connection with, with the Roman Empire. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came upon them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. And a mouth speaking great things. So, so, so notice there's this beast, and most people agree, most commentators, even different, different interpretations say that that fourth beast that we just saw in Daniel 7 is the fourth kingdom talked about in Daniel 2. So that's where they get the connection. So, Daniel 2, the fourth kingdom, um, which is Rome, right? And flip the story, Daniel 7, and now it's the fourth beast. And then he's going to have these ten horns. And then there's going to be this small horn that rises up. And the way that they describe this small horn, this little horn, eyes like the eyes of man. So it's different than what we've heard about of kingdoms. It's different about the beast. All of a sudden, this is where people go, oh, this is hinting towards this one powerful world leader. Like, this one has eyes like the eyes of man. He's saying some great things. Not necessarily good news, but he's saying some powerful things. So that's where people have got the interpretation that the Antichrist who rises up will have some powerful things to say, and he will be one that will be very clearly known. Um, and I, I want to just uh, give a reminder that we believe this powerful world leader might bring peace to, to the world um, that it seems like it's just a world full of turmoil. That's what they would say, those words that go along with that. So, almost unanimous that those things are lined up. Um, but there are different interpretations. Some believe this little horn that we see in Daniel 7, 7 as fulfilled in Israel's day. So now you've got interpretations inside of it. So the little horn, when we talk about the ten horns on the fourth beast, the little horn that rises up, a lot of interpreters say that was fulfilled in Israel's day before Christ. So that was, for some of them, they believe it was Antiochus Epiphanes, who came under the Roman control of the Seleucid uh, ruler, and then he became a violent and vicious uh, person against uh, Israel in 175 to 164 BC. So they believe that that already happened. The ten horns, the little horn, it already happened. Or another interpretation is others believe this little horn be part of a future union of leaders. So again, going to this idea of this future kingdom. So it didn't already happen. But there's this future group, so we talked about back in Daniel 2, um, and that's the Hebrew coming power before Christ's second coming. So on that, if you remember that blue timeline, I had that little bitty, little bitty arrow saying that they believe that here's the church age, and then there's this time where then this world power is going to rise up and the 
there, right before the second coming of Christ. Well, there's still more interpretations in, in, in the ten points. Um, there's different interpretations as far as some say that it would be exactly ten nations, and then some people say ten just the, the wording of ten just represents completeness. It's symbolic of completeness, and that's true. Bible, 10 always is symbolic of something that's complete. Some people say this, this union of, of nations arise that is going to be exactly 10 nations. And then some people say it, it could be 30 nations. So like some people say the EU uh, or the United Nations, something like that. So um, now when you look at this, um, like David Guzik says this, it says since Roman history provides no fulfillment of that federation of kings, which sees the number 10, whether you say 10 literal or, or many more, because the number of, of toes in the passages like Daniel 7 and Revelation 17, this prophecy must still be future. So Rome was never led by uh, 10 kings. So they, this must be in the future. Now you look at um, Revelation 17. There are seven kings. So this is, um, remember, 1900 years ago. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet arrived. But when he does arrive, he must remain a short while. So remember on the timeline, that prophetic gap. So um, 1900 years ago, there's this revelation of these, and this is in Revelation 17. Five of the seven kings or empires, as the text states, had fallen. So that's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo Persian, and Greece. That's the five that the book in Revelation there. Five have fallen. One is, that's the Roman, and the seventh one is not yet here. But when it does rise up, it's going to be there for a short time. So who is that? So what's interesting um, with some people, you know, we would say, oh, hey, you know what? There's some that actually would say it's not a, a, a new, different uh, Roman Empire. Let's say it's the Islamic Caliphate. A lot of people would say that. You may have friends that say that, that write about that, that blog on that. Since the fall of the Roman Empire, there hasn't been this one kingdom that fits this description, nor has there been anything accomplished that this proceeds. There have been some powerful kingdoms, so Islam, Hitler's, Germany, and, and their allies, the Huns, are some of the big powerful ones, but they, they don't fit all of this as that step. Um, so, the question still remains who are some options? If you've asked um, scholars from all over the world, other nations, who would they point to as the powerful one world government? So if you ask people outside of America, who would they point to? Um, and what's shocking for some of us is they would say the U.S. and Britain. So that's, if you step outside of the United States, they go, Britain and the United States? Well, they go to the scripture. Now, of course, we're like, what? We're, we're the good guys. We're always the good guys. What are you talking about? It kind of just shows how quickly we're in the defense and we're like, we're good. Which the United States is the, the, the greatest nation that's ever lived. I mean, we truly do try to do good for everyone, whether that's um, just um, sending aid to everyone that we can, helping out just billions and trillions of dollars. Everyone, uh, one of the greatest economies, one of the strongest builders, all those things. But just remember, we're 4% of the world's population. So if you're part of the 1.3 billion Muslims, right, or um, the 1.3 billion Hindus, you might be going, yeah, that America, that makes me a little nervous with their power. 
So let's take one of our American eyes and just look at the biblical text. Um, what do you think the world sees of us? I remember being in Los Angeles, Jamie and I, we lived there for a couple of summers when we were doing a perspectives class, and there was a, Muslim, a former Muslim who had become a Christian, and he talked about when he was a Muslim, and he traveled all over the world and studied religion and these things, and he remembers the first time he landed in Los Angeles at LAX. And we had done the same thing. When he got to LAX, when we were there, the first thing is he comes up these escalators, uh, was an 80 foot long uh, glass um, banner of Victoria's Secret. Victoria's Secret model, 80 foot long, as soon as you got And he had, growing up in his mom, and as a Muslim, he'd never seen the arm of his ankles. And he got off the airplane and sees that and said, Exactly. That's and now all of us would say that doesn't represent us at all, right? That, that's not that's not representative of American Christianity. But what do outsiders think about us now? Um, who are the main influencers that globally that's who they think represent America? I mean, the Kardashians, the Kanye. Now Kanye is a you know a, a Christian album for a few days, so that's who they look to. They're, they're not talking small town American Assembly God Church, right? They're not talking about moms and dads who are trying to diligently teach their children. They're not looking at that. They don't know about a, you know, a Craig Rochelle or a John MacArthur, right? I'll just take both crowds to you, but Craig's getting quite a murder, John. John's like, how dare you? You straight the same sentence with that. So both of those things, it's like, they don't even, like, that's not what the world's looking to do. Tell us what American Christianity is So for a few billion, they see us as a scary, scary, power-grabbing country. So um, we've got to understand through. Um, will there be this one world government? Will there be this leader that arises? Um, all the complex, apocalyptic prophecy interpretation, the many, many ideas and thoughts, the many voices, the many interpretations, among all those voices, um, this next section gives us this beautiful truth. So let's look at uh, Daniel 2, 44 through 46. And in the days of those kings, which we just talked about, which also we just heard about a little bit more about in Daniel 7, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break the pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, Great God has made known to the king. What should be after this? The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. So through all those voices, all the different interpretations, whatever you think the end times is going to be like, whatever your eschatology is, what God wanted us to get out of this was not the exact details, but instead that the great God has made known to us his redemptive plan. This is certain and sure. Because of his faithfulness to his word and because he is all powerful, he is redeeming a people for himself. And Daniel 2, if we go back to that, that first introductory summary that we read today in Daniel 2, 34 through 35, as you look, the stone was cut by no human hand and struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke it into pieces. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and fill the whole earth. 
So we know that that stone is Christ. We know that that stone that would come is Christ. Um, Daniel and God are saying that God is heaven. He is set up for his power. He is going to set up his, his eventual rule and reign. His kingdom on this earth. Now, again, we go into another interpretation. Do you think, man, this seems simple. The stone is Christ. Well, there's another question that I've asked. Is that when Christ first came? On the first advent? Was that when, is that what we're talking about? When he destroyed and he set up his kingdom? So we know that Jesus inaugurated his kingdom. But then also we can ask the question, or is this the kingdom when Christ returns a second time on his second advent and sets up his true, um, full, eternal kingdom? A thousand year reign on the earth. Is that what it's speaking about? So some of this refers to Christ's first coming when he inaugurated his kingdom. They would give evidence saying that Jesus didn't destroy the Roman Empire immediately, that he was just establishing his kingdom on the earth. They'd say that his cross, his death, was what broke into pieces all those kingdoms and brought them to end. Um, but others would believe that this refers to Christ's second coming, where Jesus will set up his kingdom fully. They would give evidence saying Jesus did not overthrow or destroy the Roman Empire. So we see that Jesus didn't overthrow and destroy Rome when he was here, right? Uh, they say that Jesus' kingdom is not like a, a great mountain filling the whole earth right now. Uh, they would say that his ultimate victory over all things is still yet to come. So, some that have debated and write thick, thick books, it's been decades studying this stuff out. So it is pretty clear that the kingdom is already here. Jesus inaugurated his kingdom. He said the kingdom of heaven is near. It is here. I'm inaugurating. The king is here. And he, he died, and in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, he brought us the gospel, and in that he defeated Satan, he defeated sin, he defeated death, but not yet fully. None of us would say that you know, Satan and death and sin is completely gone away with right now. So the kingdom is already, but not yet fully, like it will be one day. And so the angel that it, it's both. It's not either or, it's both. The kingdom is already not yet fully. So we can see that Christ comes come in and did these things. That even as evil continues to swell, Christ's kingdom continues to grow. And it doesn't mean that it goes from you know, a billion people to 7.6 billion, right? Uh, Jesus said that the world is always going to be opposed to being my message. So there's this remnant idea of faithfulness. Um, Jesus rebuked his closest friends when their minds kept on wandering to give us the details, give us the details. Now are you going to fulfill the kingdom? Are you going to completely bring on your powerful forces and, and as the Messiah set up your um, kingdom rule? And he was rebuking them when they were just focused on those things. What was he saying then? Hey, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you in power. Go and be my witnesses. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I've commanded that's what he was saying to the church. So each one of these eras, when a different regime would set up and take over, or each kingdom moved into power, much of the world saw that being in power, but most of the world were not tying it to a biblical worldview. So what makes us think that we're just going to understand clearly all these pieces, even though there are people that, that, that want to um, teach that? So it should lead us to an enjoyable trust and not fear. 
It should have been an enjoyable trust and not fear. Now I know there are, I know there's like, I just know a couple, I don't even know people, but I just know places, there are churches that are doing the preppers thing. And so on you know, a Sunday afternoon class or a Thursday afternoon class is doing the preppers thing because um, stocking up supplies so we won't have to take the mark of the beast and so we won't have to worship the Antichrist today and have any time. And so they're doing that. Um, and then also um, just um, fear of government takeover, whether that's our own government, there's a lot of fear of our own government turning on us, or what if China takes over? What if this happens? So all that, this should, should turn us to enjoyable trust, not fear. Um, is it, is it maybe wise? And hey, okay, then it showed us. Having some water and toilet paper is probably a good thing because people freak out. And maybe that you're still going to be fine with four rolls of toilet paper. The thing for a few days, it looked like, man, we're gonna be, what are we going to do? In nine months from now, we're going to have water and toilet paper. So is it wise for Christians to have some, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's wise to, to, to plan ahead for things. But I hope that maybe your um, extreme liberal, um, whatever Christians hate neighbor, that you would very quickly go and go, hey, I'm going to water here. Take some water. And notice you're out of toilet paper. Take some toilet paper. Instead of, uh, our prophecies are right. All those Christians are right. We got it all hoarded up. We knew it. The church told us it was happening. Too bad for you. I hope that we would be the ones leading in that, uh, of getting um, gospel works out of people and loving people in the right way. And so um, it should be a visible peace and not a, just a, a fighting or an argument in the spirit. Um, I'm right. I'm right about this. It should lead to humility and love and compassion, being faithful gospel um, examples of Christ. Made in his image. And so this, this text point us to that. That I, we don't have to live in fear. Um, so no matter your interpretation, it's clear that God's Christ would come and destroy and dismantle all earthly humans and establish the kingdom of God. So it's here, but not yet for it. So the two absolutes here is God has spoken, and this is definite. Now, um, the last part there, Nebuchadnezzar, the way that he responds, let's read this in closing. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face. And paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief prefect of all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained as the king's, in the king's, at the king's court. So, this is a pretty shocking thing. So I want you to see the two main things here. Notice Nebuchadnezzar's response. It's in awe, but we're going to find out at the beginning, if you just go right like two verses later, chapter 3, first verses, he sets up this huge idol and builds a statue of worship. So if you've heard of syncretism and missions, it's where it's a person who worships other deities and then worship other idols, and then Christians come along, or missionaries come along, they got to hear about Jesus, and the missionaries, and they're like, no, what does Jesus do? Because my God sometimes fail, and I'm going to hear you say that, and then you'll go curse me, but what does your God do? Oh, he gives you forgiveness of sins. He does, he, he promises you a good life, and eternal life afterwards. Oh, that sounds good. I'll, I'll take Jesus and all the missionaries come out and send letters home and everyone celebrates and then you find out in like month two that they 
gods. So the missionary comes in frustrated, so that's syncretism, where they're adding on Jesus into their own understanding. And he's just adding God. So this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar does. He's God of gods and Lord of kings. And let's go build another idol over here, because now I'm insane. Now I'm able to take off some of these other gods. So let's make sure the worship goes on over here. So we see what he does here. Pay homage to them. And sometimes it's a form of worship, because we see. He offers incense to the That's got to be awkward. Um, so, Nebuchadnezzar's response is entertaining. So, he's interested in what God might do for him. You reveal this mystery to me. That benefits me, benefits me, benefits me. So, I like this, I like this God. And so, we've got to have a better response for our gods. We've got full revelation, we've got full knowledge of Christ. Um, it would seem like the equation would be if we're looking for life point applications, we could have made the main point of the sermon. If you are good and righteous, you'll be rewarded by God with supernatural ability and the highest of promotions, and nothing that will happen to you. Your life will be filled with prosperity, opportunity, and success. About your head, close your eyes, and think what me. That, that, that's what could be the sermon points. That's not at all what's going on. Um, if you go just again to chapter 3, Daniel asked me, hey, my boys, Shadrach, uh, Meshach, and Abednego, I know you're promoting me. Uh, oh, that means I have to be around you all the time? Uh, uh, well, um, what about these guys? They get put up in this place where they're visible leaders now, and that's exactly what takes them down to have to face the line of the, uh, the fire of furnace in chapter 3, right? And so, man, that's no, your best life now for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You just don't ever want to go on to that kind of thinking where the Bible puts this equation that if I do everything right, then everything just works out perfectly. And, and if, if you struggle with control, that, that's a really difficult thing to get over. Sometimes God just keeps throwing stuff up there because we really love control. Um, how many Nebuchadnezzar prayers have been offered and counted as true salvation in our last century? Like Jason said, this is early on, and it's clear he goes to chapter 3, he's, he's building an idol. Um, but then there's other times that's what Jason was saying, where, where it looks like this guy's getting some clarity. He's seeing something about this one through God. So we'll get into that. We'll see Nebuchadnezzar another couple of times where he's, he's responding differently. So is this guy, or is he going to kind of come to faith? Um, never before, 4,000, never before, 4,000 BC. To 1890 AD was the idea of altar call, or people said to me, walk out now, was that ever? So, 4000 BC, all of Old Testament Israel, and then for um, 1880, 1870, 1890 years at the church age, was ever that part of the deal. It is common for people to like God when something seemingly supernatural takes place. So church, for some, becomes a, kind of a carnival of the supernatural. Um, or when people make a confession about God because they're told God guarantees them that a, a better life, of course they want But we can't be like Nebuchadnezzar where if God makes me prosper, if God makes life beneficial, then I'll accept God. That's coming to God on your own terms where you're actually yourself as being God. Yes, coming to Jesus 
does bring eternal life. You come to Jesus with your faith and does forgive us sins. That's what he came for. But it doesn't necessarily mean your life is going to be just easy and comfortable. Um, we, we, we've lived in a beautiful time because of the hard work of two generations, uh, uh, traditionalists and boomers, my generation, the Xers and the millennials, we've got really nice things and some really nice opportunities because of two generations that, that worked for television did some great things. But all of that was just God's grace. We have to see every bit of that as God's grace. It wasn't much we were just better than other countries. That's a beautiful picture of God's grace on us. Um, we want to see that People have a faith. We've got to get beyond Nebuchadnezzar's idea of if God is good for me, then I'll accept him, but I'll keep these other idols. So how many people in America have walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, repeated something after me, but there's never a lot change? So what we see out of Nebuchadnezzar's prayer was this was just lip service. This was a true brokenness over sin. This was a repentance. This wasn't a blank down the rocks. How many Americans or uh, other people have, have walked out and made those professions repeated after me, but yet they still serve other gods? Very clearly. Sometimes, sadly, in the church, you almost get moved to leadership positions because of how many other gods you serve. But then you talk a good talk on them in Israel. Oh, yeah, God, God, God's or rewards. This chapter reveals from God that. Our corrupt human kingdoms, governments will rule and dominate for the season, but God's redemptive plan has sent Christ to die for our sin, for our sins. He is our rock of salvation. It has come and is coming soon again. While he inaugurated his kingdom and established his church as the gospel outpost that we see, a faithful gospel presence for securing and equipping saints, it's also there for the mission of so we've got to see that that's what God had put his church there for as gospel outposts. What kind of posture and security should believers show in the midst of governments, and leaderships, and kingdoms, and policies, and civil unrest that are opposed to our own beliefs and our own religion? What kind of posture and attitudes can we have when we know that God has spoken, that God has told us that his faithful truth? The shepherd reveals that God is our sovereign, sometimes purposely allowing his own people to experience trials, suffering, even death, so that his name, his name, God, might go forth. He knows our path, he knows our future, when we don't, and he's waiting for us in the future. Not only eternal, but in the next five years, in the next ten years. He's with us there. We're not going to run into a part where he's not there. So how about that bring hope? Perseverance, possibly even joy in a time where we went through a crazy 2020 when all kinds of voices were screaming, all kinds of terrible things. How does that lead us to the point where we're saying, God, what does your word say? Can we pray more? Can we go to your word more? Can we get people who are united in unity with you? So that's what we have our opinion. As we leave and go to the Lord's Supper, um, I'd say that very clearly. Uh, as it gets to the end, I'll be purposely got to those last verses of Nebuchadnezzar and wants us to see don't be like Nebuchadnezzar. Um, don't give lip service. Um, you, you want to be um, found faithful in Christ. You want to put your hope in Christ. 
Um, the king said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. There's going to be a lot of believers, or a lot of people who think that they're believers. Uh, in Matthew 7, Jesus says, Many, many are going to say, Lord, Lord, say words. He's going to say, Depart from me. I never knew you. You know, this is your life to show. You get evidence that you were changed. Salvation in Daniel 2 is God was establishing himself as the one true God. This God has showed up and done these things. This God has spoken. This is certain. This is true. Jesus said in John 17, um, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. The same picture that Daniel 2 talks about. That they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we have clarity. And for us, we know that God has given us the full revelation of the New Testament, the full gospel story. We get to see Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. So we have all of that. That's what we've got to put our rest in, for our trust in. There are people who love that idea of salvation, but not necessarily a rejuvenating, perpetual, growing love of Jesus Himself. Um, if we're not careful, worship services, and, and not even, as believers, we can kind of worship services and not even realize that we're, we're making it all about us. So this should confront us every single week. If we're coming in and we're, we're thinking, I'm just bored with church, it's a reveal of hearts. If we're coming in just um, even critically, just, does this make me happy? Do I like what this goes? Do I like those songs? Do I like this? You see what's happening? You flip it. That's not worship of God. And you contemplate his greatness. That's going, do I like this? Am I happy? The worship is of self. And what we've done in that is we've removed the gospel and the great high glory of God and made it common. And something that gets in the room, but now it's all about me. That's exactly what happens. So this should confront us every week in that kind of thing, where we wouldn't be like any other, where we wouldn't be just a part of a church that just looks at church as what makes me happy. That's where God's religion calls for a response for having a whole story built up to that. It also calls for a response for us today. So, where is your heart with Christ today? Is God Himself enough for you? Is He the reward you're seeking? Or is it the promises of no problems in life? Easy life? Um, being back with Grandpa fishing in heaven. We have this chance every single week to contemplate the greatness of God, the glory of the gospel, what He's done on the cross. So I'm going to pray and uh, then we're going to go and uh, I'll let you guys go and get the elements. If you're a person that's here and not um, a believer, not a follower of Christ, I believe we tell you we want to guard the table of the bread of the cup the city. For the first time, you must respond to Christ. You must respond and ask Christ for this mercy, for the forgiveness of sins, and not pretend this. If you're a person that's a believer, you're standing and you're in mean, good standing, you're, you're not um, in any just open sin, or you're um, living in sin, living in a life that's living outside of other church, then we 
it's a God protect us. It's open to me. We can do that as believers. You know? So let me pray.